Hello and welcome to ASTCT Talks, the official podcast of the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy. We chat with industry leaders from all areas of the blood and marrow transplantation and cellular therapy field, including doctors, physician assistants, pharmacists, nurses, administrators, social workers, and more. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to this episode of ASTCT Talks. Today, we are happy to be joined by Dr. Lori Muffley, who is Associate Professor of Medicine in the Blood and Marrow Transplantation and Cellular Therapy Service at Stanford. Hi, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Christina. It's great to be here uh, with ASTCT. Today, we were going to talk about acute lymphoblastic leukemia, but before that, I was hoping you could share um, just your story and what brought you to this research um, interest and, and where you are today. Sure. Um, so thank you. And thanks for having me. Um, so I, um, I joined um, my fellowship program in hematology oncology at the University of Chicago in 2010. And prior to that, um, I had never really, um, really been much involved with research. Um, I was at Dartmouth for residency and um, you know, had my first kid and was really kind of involved in um, my just sort of building a family. And when I got the, to the University of Chicago, I um, I very uh, quickly was introduced to two people that have had really a, a forever impact on my career. Um, the first being Andy Arts. So Andy's currently a professor at um, the City of Hope, and he is uh, really a health outcomes researcher and a clinician. And interestingly enough, his focus is geriatric transplant and leukemia. Um, and the second person is Wendy Stock, who um, I'm sure many of our listeners know Wendy's work. Um, she's really the the foremother of um, AYA ALL in our country, and um, really, um, you know, uh, is just been always been so passionate about young adults with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And so, the two of them became my mentors in fellowship. And um, I think for anyone who's looked at my CV, it's a little bit funny because particularly for those initial formative years, half of it is geriatric focus and half of it is AYA focus. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, but um, I think that's because I just had this incredible opportunity to work with the two of them and learn from them and, and follow in their footsteps. And um, so I always, um, I think, you know, the funny thing about, about my career trajectory is that I've held um, their training and their interests so close to me through the years. Um, and so I sort of, I, I guess, wove my way through it all and found a way to really incorporate what I enjoy, which is um, ALL, uh, particularly in young adults, but then also um, transplant and cellular therapy. And I've been really fortunate that I've been at Stanford for um, almost nine years now and um, have had an ability to um, really be given the space to develop here, um, both in terms of my clinical interests as well as my research interests, um, which do span um, everything from epidemiology to you know clinical translational um, interventional trials. Um, so that's kind of how I, I, I think that's in a nutshell how I, how I develop these sort of, I guess, odd combination of interests. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of, or every ALL specialist needs to be in tune to some degree with the needs of the AYA population, but I think often it's sort of easier said than done. Um, so how is your practice and your, you know, your AYA program in particular um, structured at, at Stanford? 
Yeah. So um, when I was at the University of Chicago, of course, many years now, I was there at a very formative time because um, the C10403 trial was just launched um, right you know, a year or two before I came. And so Dr. Sock was in the thick of it and I was her pretty much her main fellow. She also had just um, just kind of started the process of developing an AYA leukemia clinic, leukemia transplant clinic at the time. And um, I was part of writing that charter and the first fellow in that clinic. So I had this really intense AYA experience for a year or two. Um, there were a lot of very unique features at the University of Chicago that allowed for this really kind of joint AYA program, um, which was truly, and still is, um, they've grown it since I was there. It, it's truly remarkable and it incorporates, you know, pediatric and adult um, uh, faculty and staff and patients in one, which is just tremendous. Um, I don't have that at Stanford. Um, what I what I have developed at Stanford um, is is a bit different, but also very um, worthwhile, uh, at least to me. So when I first came here um, and joined the transplant cell therapy division, um, it was a smaller division at the time. You know, no one had heard of CAR T cells. We were still doing, you know, we're still doing a lot of auto transplant, but of course, you know, it was it was a transplant group, and. Um, I came in really having this passion for acute leukemia, but also passion for transplant. And um, initially, very few of my colleagues were really kind of specialists, I would say, disease-focused specialists or patient population specialists. You know, everyone sort of had the research that they preferred, but from a patient care perspective, most people saw a bit of everything. Um, there was a few exceptions at the time, but um, I I made it clear pretty quickly that I you know had much much more of an interest in acute leukemia and even even so far as didn't feel that comfortable with some of my other some of the other diseases that I was uh, seeing at the time and so our over time um, our leadership um, really allowed me to develop in that way and in the last few years um, not only have I uh, been granted the permission to really focus in acute leukemia. And I do see um, and specialize in both ALL and AML um, referrals uh, for transplant and CAR T cells. But um, that's really the way our division has evolved. So we uh, started from kind of a generalist perspective, and now we have more of a disease-focused group perspective where um, faculty opt into the disease areas that they want to see and focus their research on. And as long as they are kind of you know, pulling their weight in those areas, then, then that's really how we designed our program. And, and I think it it has led to a lot greater satisfaction and, and I would say career advancement too. Um, we still do have some faculty that are more generalists and that's by choice because they really love seeing a bit of everything and doing a bit of everything. But for someone like me being able to see, you know, 50% ALL or 75% or ALL has been really just wonderful. I don't have a, a true AYA program um, we have a consultative service at Stanford that um, helps with fertility in particular, as well as, you know, hooking our a AYAs up with some of the psychosocial services and support groups. But, you know, a dream would be to have a true AYA program, but our institution really is is not very well set up for that because the adult and pediatric hospitals are completely separate entities. Like there's no, there's no cross structure. We don't even use the same EPIC version. Um, so it's very, very um, distinct in that way. But um, I still feel as though I'm doing a service for AYAs and I they're 
you know, I love my AYAs. They're my passion, you know, population. What do you think are, you know, if you were to name the most pressing needs with respect to, you know, of course there's the clinical piece, but also, you know, what is it we still need to study or understand about the um, AYA, AYA population? Oh, I mean, I think, you know, when I think about ALL right now, at least from my vantage point, um, and I guess I'm answering this more from the ALL perspective, um, I think that, you know, it's very clear. I don't know how many meetings I've gone to in the last couple of years about ALL and, you know, everyone acknowledges the incredible sea change that has occurred with, um, you know, newer and effect, more effective drugs that are moving into the frontline setting very quickly, um, more effective TKIs for pH positive ALL, CAR T cell therapy, um, just so much going on, all the, all the work with MRD. But one of the things that I find very, very frustrating, which I, I think uh, I am not alone in this, is that because of the way our research has been uh, constructed in adult ALL over the years, um, we have a very, like really a dearth of randomized data. And I think that has led to a lot of confusion, um, you know, within centers, within the community about really what the best approach is for, you know, adult patients with ALL, be it AYAs, be it middle-aged adults, be it older adults, you know, pH positive, pH negative. Um, each center does it differently. And that's, I, in my opinion, I think it's in part due to the fact that we have a, a, a lot of, you know, single arm phase two studies you know, even the pediatric regimen studies are single arm phase two studies. And when, when you do research like that, um, I think it becomes very difficult to set a standard. And even if you look at the NCCN guidelines, there's preferred regimens, but, but truthfully, I think anything goes really in ALL and you can make an argument as to why anything is better um, because so little has been actually proven. And, um, you know, ALL is such a rare disease that it's very difficult to do randomized studies and it takes forever to do these studies and the pace at which these therapeutic advancements have come. I mean, of course, we have the randomized studies of, you know, the tower study and innovate those, those were randomized studies in the relapsed refractory versus chemo. But I'm, I'm talking about particularly frontline studies um, and they do take forever to do. And so, so I understand why, why they, they're not typically done. But I think for the treating clinician, it makes it very difficult. And, and that's probably, I think, one of my, my the biggest challenges that we face right now is knowing how to incorporate everything without real great data to guide us. Um, in terms of the AYAs, um, you know, something that I struggle with that I'm sure a lot of people on this call struggle with is um, we are increasingly moving away from transplanting AYAs and first complete remission, which makes a lot of sense. I think there's still a lot of questions about um, how to use MRD to guide us in terms of who to transplant, um, what, what type of MRD should be guiding us. Um, and then I, I always have this, um, you know, nagging sense that, ah, uh, if I just did a transplant on this person, I think I could just cure them. It's such a high likelihood of curing them. But, you know, I, I can't do it because the data, you know, right now, retrospective data, of course, again, no randomized data would suggest that, you know, the pediatric regimen is probably sufficient, but maybe not. So I think those are, those are hard. They're still difficult. I mean, none of it's been proven. Um, and then the other piece, I'm sorry, I keep going on and on. I can 
obviously talk about this topic like ad nauseum, but I think the other piece I struggle with as someone who does therapy that um, has an effect on fertility is kind of the opposite of that. Like I know my therapy in some patients, I feel very confident that's likely to be curative. Um, but then I also have that like nagging drawback where even if I think I should offer the transplant or I think there's a benefit there, particularly for women, if I'm taking away their fertility, that feels horrible. And so sometimes I find myself pulling back a little bit because I, I don't want, I don't want to do that. Um, so it's that, that push and pull, I think of, um, you know, risk benefit that I think is, you know, really difficult in all of our patient populations. And, you know, AYAs, there's certain, there's certain risk benefit calculations, including fertility that we have to account for in our older adults, there's different risk benefit, you know, there's equally important, but a different thing where, you know, a different set of risks and benefits we're thinking about. And so these are the struggles of, I think, being a, a transplant doctor, honestly. Um, and it's why I really enjoy it. I think it's really intense and it's really rewarding, but you're holding like, you know, the decisions related to someone's livelihood in your hand. And, and that's always hard. Um, you talked about um, MRD and and I wanted to call attention to two studies that you led that were presented at Tandem this past year on Clonaseek for MRD monitoring. So could you walk the audience through through your approach to MRD monitoring and um, and its use in making treatment decisions? Yeah. Um, so when I first came to Stanford in 2014, um, our one of my colleagues, now he's my chief, but David Miklos, um, who some in the audience, if they're listening, may may know. Um, David is just phenomenal um, and funny um, and unique in many ways. But um, he was doing a lot of work um, with uh, a company in South San Francisco called Sequenta. And um, him and um, another colleague who's at UCSF named Aaron Logan, we're running a lot of uh, the Stanford patient samples through this high throughput sequencing technology and looking for, you know, small amounts of disease and publishing on it. You know, when I came, they had a couple of really, really nice papers like 10 years ago out on this um, in CLL, in ALL. Um, and I, you know, this was all brand new to me, this idea. Um, of course, I had heard about MRD and was doing a little bit of flow MRD um, before coming to Stanford. But I right away was like, hey, if I'm going to be seeing ALL, I, I need to learn about this. And so I got um, connected and I started using, essentially, I started using, I guess, this type of NGS-based MRD back in 2014. I still have some of my reports from my patients back then. And so I'm almost 10 years into using what is now Clonoseq in my patient population. And um, I think through the, the decade, I've um, learned a lot, like a lot of like nuanced little pearls about using this test, how to use it, when to use it. Um, I'm not, you know, I, there's more to learn. And certainly I haven't like conquered it because <laughs> there's still reports that come out where I'm like, I don't understand this or, or I don't know what to do with this report, but um, I think it, it's a game changer for me and for my practice. And so I can tell you, um, you know, we've published, um, a few things now. And in fact, the, what you just referenced, the abstracts at uh, Tandem are now uh, just, just came out in Blood Advances. Um, really talented fellow, Emily Liang is the first author of that paper. But um, what I try to do and really all of our, the vast, vast majority of our referring doctors in our region um, 
a lot of them are from Kaiser, but they also use Clonoseek now. And so I try as best as I can pre if I'm taking someone to transplant, if I've determined that I think they need a transplant, um, I really do try to get their Clonoseek down as low as possible with an ideal of being zero. Um, that is not always feasible as we know. And sometimes in doing that occasionally, you know, the, the opposite happens and you, you give Blinn or something else and they're, they, they progress. And that's always devastating. I hate when that happens, but you know, our data, you know, at least our data that we put together in this, in this particular publication does suggest that, you know, it, it does matter. Even low level clonoseek MRD seems to influence outcomes. Um, so that's one thing of in the pre-transplant setting. Um, I do try to use myeloablative regimens in ALL um, that, you know, again, we don't have, <laughs> we, we definitely don't have prospective data in ALL, but we do in AML. And I, I really do think um, dose intensity is important. Um, and then post-transplant, I do a lot of clonoseek monitoring uh, almost entirely from the peripheral blood. So I really do very little um, bone marrow assessments, except in select cases where I know that the blood and the bone marrow are highly discordant from previous data. Um, we always do a marrow at our uh, center around day 90. So all patients get one marrow, but usually for my ALL patients, unless there's a reason to do serial marrows, that's it. Um, and I check um, the blood-based MRD clonoseek usually every two months or so in the first year, year starting at day 30. So day 30, sometimes day 60, day 90, and then every two months. And then I start to slow down in year two because um, what we've seen is that if you remain negative in the first year, you're, you're highly unlikely to then progress beyond year one. And so I do check in year two, but not as frequently. And then I, I really usually stop after that. So that's, that's been my practice for monitoring. And I've picked up, I mean, several, several impending relapses in the blood, um, just at low level MRD that we've been able to um, act on, um, that we've been able to provide CAR T cells or some other consolidative therapy or stop the tacrolimus. That's also been a very effective um, intervention, particularly within the first six months. Um, so I, I have found this incredibly helpful to my practice. So do you establish at some point at baseline that there is a concordance between marrow and blood on a per patient basis? Um, we used to. So um, before this all became, you know, commercial and I would actually do a lot of paired blood and marrow. And then I published um, in Blood Advances a year or two ago on the paired blood and marrow and our experience at Stanford on, I can't remember how many patients, maybe like a hundred patients or something. And you know, the truth of it is that marrow for most patients, not all, but for most patients, marrow is going to be about a log more sensitive than blood. Um, some patients, it's like two logs more sensitive. Um, there are some patients where blood is more sensitive than marrow or as sensitive. Um, but if, if you're transplanting someone and what you're really looking for is the emergence of MRD, right? Like they're zero and you're, you're making sure you're looking for the emergence Blood-based monitoring is going to be more um, sensitive for that than MRD flow-based bone marrows for the vast majority of patients. And so to me, it's like, all right, how much are you actually losing by doing clonoseek of the blood? You're not really, maybe you're losing a log, but you're still super sensitive. Um, so I don't now, um, mostly the reason I don't establish concordance now is because 
insurance typically won't pay for both. So there's no mechanism to do that. And I have just found that it really doesn't matter. The patients that I, that I track with Marrow's, I would say it's usually because of the patients themselves, because they know that they're discordant and they just don't feel that satisfaction with just following the blood. And I've got a few patients like that in my clinic who we've seen where the marrow, you know, day 60, the blood, day 30, 60 blood is negative. Day 90 marrow, you've got five clonal cells and they just, they just won't again, go back to blood because they felt like it didn't pick it up. The patients I'm thinking of right now, though, that are in that situation after, you know, I don't know, three, four serial marrows that are neg that go to negative or that are good, they're like, all right, we can go back to blood. So I haven't found that, like, I have to use marrow. It's just I have some really savvy patients out here that are, you know, totally on it. And I, I respect, I mean, I, obviously, I respect that. Like, I want the patient, part of what I love about this particular test is it, it makes the patient feel empowered to know what's happening with their leukemia. and. I treat a lot of AML too. And, you know, I use a lot of NGS based MRD and AML too, uh, particularly for FLT3 or NPM1 mutated patients. But the vast majority of the patients I see, or I shouldn't say the vast majority, I'd say at least half the patients I see, there is nothing that I have that's sensitive enough to track them other than flow or fish or something like that. And, you know, the patient doesn't feel empowered. And as the doctor, I don't really feel empowered. Like I, I'm blind. And these patients, as you know, very well, they relapse without warning and it's awful. And you think you're doing so well. And then all of a sudden it's like platelets drop and you do a marrow and there's 20% blast. And so I haven't had that happen to me in ALL in so long. Like I, it's been years actually, I think since I've been totally shocked, um, that one of my post-transplant patients has relapsed. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think, um, I think it's, you know, I think this is the future of treating heme malignancies. I, I can't imagine it's going to go backwards. Um, what do you about the, what do you do about the pH positive patients? That's a really good question. Um, so I, I've gone back and forth. I, when, when I started using NGS based MRD, I was using a lot of clonoseq for pH positive patients. And then I um, sort of realized that um, you know, I wasn't, I didn't find that I was getting much more out of it than using BCR able. And it just, it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit, it's just BCR able we do here in my institution. It's pretty rapid. Um, so then I went back to BCR able, but then actually like I had a lot of issues with like the BCR able with, you know, I wasn't sure at the low level if it was false positives or whatever. So I, I sort of went back to Clonoseq. I started doing them both. I think there's emerging data, you know, on the comparison and, um, there are definitely patients who are going to be clonoseq negative, BCR able positive, and those probably are patients that have a CML like um, like situation. Um, you know, have the BCR able not in the lymphoid blast clone. Um, I I do predominantly use BCR able PCR these days, but I'm very quick to add a clonoseq if something doesn't make sense or if I'm like just not sure what's happening. Um, so I think that's that's been my practice for the last couple of years. And with respect to marrow versus blood, also. Oh, I just I just do blood. blood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same practice. I don't I don't do marrows unless there's a reason to do marrows. Um. 
I do want to say one thing because I, I sense we'll move away from MRD, but I want to make a comment about clonacy because I think it's it's quite important, um, particularly if there's people who are listening that haven't used this test a lot or new to it, don't use it at all. Um, this test has a lot of nuances to it, and it's not as simple as just ordering um, you know, a BCR able and waiting for it to come back positive, negative with a number. Um, not that that test is that simple either, honestly, but but this test is not simple. And so um, it's, it's even so not simple that adaptive actually has a training, um, uh, like a training program that I attended that's a two-day program where you just learn to learn about how Clonaseq works. So it it's it's really, really, really important that if you're new to this test and you're not understanding the result or you don't know what to do with it, that you ask adaptive or you ask someone you know who does that, who's used it a lot, because I have definitely gotten back reports or I've been referred patients where they have, you know, a persistently positive kappa light chain clone, their IGH clone was gone after induction and they're being referred for transplant. And when we look back at all the data, we see that this kappa light chain clone wasn't a particularly unique clone. The limit of detection was, you know, very, um, you know, it was very high. Um, and this is probably not the leukemia cells that we're, that we're tracking here. And so we have to be really, really careful about intervening on some of these reports if they're not, you know, you have to feel quite confident in what you're seeing. And sometimes this test can be tricky, particularly with the TCR, the TCR sequences, as well as the uh, light chain sequences. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, I mean, I guess my um, one question would be also, you know, there are so many, uh, um, unanswered questions and knowledge gaps in general in terms of NGS, and there's so many platforms. And um, I would guess that you're probably not alone in having been referred patients for transplant based on, on genomic results that, you know, of which the clinical relevance is not clear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, it behooves the, that's why, that's why I actually am, um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time going to leukemia meetings and thinking about leukemia. And I, I am a believer. I mean, everyone comes at transplant from a different space. You know, I have colleagues that the only clinics they've really spent time in and training was transplant clinics. Like they, it doesn't matter if it's for lymphoma, leukemia, for, you know, MF, whatever, because it's just the process of transplant and the, the immunology of it and kind of, you know, everything deep into the transplant. I guess I come from the space of like, to be a good transplanter in a disease that I care about, like I really have to understand the disease and be in that space really well, because then I can catch and and help, you know, make the best decisions about, you know, patient selection, for example, or like what's the latest data on who should we transplant in pH positive ALL or the use of maintenance or the use of MRD or, you know, giving blin or giving, you know, how many cycles of INO. And I just, I just feel as though I feel like I'm better at what my role is clinically by being a better leukemia doctor and hematologist. And that's been my approach ever since I, you know, took a transplant job, which I think I, I didn't know I was going to take a transplant job. So I've always kept it about the leukemia and I really enjoy that. And I think everyone is different and I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying that's been my, that's been my approach. Um, and I, I, I get a lot of enjoyment and I think 
I think my patients do too, because the other thing that I really like to do when a patient comes is I like to ask them how much they know about their diagnosis. And a lot of times, um, you know, I see a lot of Spanish speaking patients, like a ton, and we're very, very lucky here that, you know, pretty much everyone gets an interpreter. Um, and so I'll just spend like a half hour going over like the epidemiology of ALL and like how it works. And, you know, and that's a, that's a luxury, I think. Um, so I enjoy that piece. So then in general, in your practice, who do you transplant? For ALL or for? For ALL. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that our referral, you know, I, I, there's, I, I have sort of, I guess, three main referral bases. One is from the Stanford, uh, the, the physician at Stanford who sees the, you know, uh, non-cell therapy ALL. Um, another is from Kaiser Permanente, which is, you know, by far our bigger, biggest referral base. And a third is kind of the remainder of community practitioners in the region. Um, and I think they all have different kind of set points for referral for ALL. So a lot of, you know, like any transplant group, a lot of what you end up seeing is what gets referred to you. Um, I think things have changed a little bit where, um, I'm not seeing the MRD negative CR1 patients from our Stanford group or usually from Kaiser anymore. They're just not getting referred. And, and that's okay, actually. I don't I think that's fine. Um I think where I struggle a lot is the very low MRD positive post-induction patients who then clear. Um, I struggle a lot with the pH positive ALL patients. Um, so I, I I have just come to to a point where in ALL right now, I think I don't use any um I don't use any sort of uh definite do this definite do that like I have no preconceived like absolutes in my decision making because it's so individual for that patient, you know what is going on in their lives what's their disease biology been so far what did their doctor decide to give them how confident am I that they're going to have the right monitoring. What can I offer them from transplant? You know, transplant has changed so much. Like I love giving talks on ALL and transplant to ALL doctors or AML doctors, because you get to show everything that's evolved in transplant. Um, do I have a really, really nice new approach for them in transplant that I think is going to really lower their GBHD risk? So I think it's just, it's very individualized. So I can't even really answer the question anymore. Um, I, it's just like the patient in front of me really dictates that decision now. Um, and uh, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit because um, you mentioned CAR T cells to, um, to the use of, to CAR T cell therapy. Um, I think one question in with respect to who to transplant is, you know, which transplants in general do you transplant after CAR T cells? after bexacaptogene sorry yeah 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 um well that's that's you know a huge a huge question for pediatric um you know physicians as well as for us um i you probably didn't catch this um because it just happened at asco but um really um fantastic fellow at the university of chicago greg roloff presented um the first sort of data dump from um, a real world consortium in adult ALL CAR T. And um, this 
um, really uh, was is a fairly miraculous endeavor because it happened over, I think, like less than six months putting it together and getting the first data out there. And there'll be a bigger data set hopefully presented to Ash. But what was interesting about it is that he presented on around 76 patients who got um, brexicaptogen or Tocardis in uh, post-approval, um, adult ALL relapse refractory. And only like 10 patients had gotten a transplant as consolidation. You know, so I think um, that is actually fairly similar, maybe even less than in the actual Zuma 3 published data. So I think what we're seeing is that the use of transplant as consolidation thus far isn't super high in like clinical practice. And part of that is that in, in this data set that Greg has, you know, half the patients or more had gotten a prior transplant. And so as we know, in the adult world, it's very difficult in ALL to do a second allo, more difficult, I would say, than in AML. Um, I actually do a lot of second transplant in AML, I feel, but in ALL, it's very rare that I offer it. And most of the time when I offer it, patients say no anyway. Um, so I, I mean, my practice, I think this is what most people are doing right now based on, again, a, a total lack of clear data. But my practice is that if I'm taking a patient to CAR T cells who hasn't been transplanted, who is, you know, fit, younger, want, would otherwise be transplanted, it's usually because their disease is so bad that they couldn't get to transplant. You know, their, their MRD is too high. They have too much disease. So those patients, you know, really I'm using CAR-T as a bridge and, and the goal is transplant. And we have, we have several of those transplant naive patients where all you're trying to do is get them to the deepest MRD you can and take them. Um, so I'm doing that. Like in those patients, I'm not confident that CAR-T alone is the answer. And I certainly am transplanting them. Then the other set of patients, I would say, is those that relapse for me post-transplant. And those are usually patients who have MRD, um, sometimes low MRD. They're in the process of relapsing. Maybe they have 40 clonal cells by IGH, clonoseq, or something like that. Those patients, I usually am not transplanting. Very rarely am I transplanting them again. Um, and I've done a whole bunch of different things. I mean, I can't say like, I have the answers because, you know, as we know, a lot of them are going to relapse anyway with the car, but I've tried some things now um, where I am trying to adopt the pediatric literature. There's a really um, beautiful how I treat article in blood um, from Regina Myers and Michael Pulsiver that just came out. And really what they argue is that um, a combination of clonoseq and um, B-cell aplasia within the first few months can help at least guide you. So um, I try really to keep tabs, you know, I do um, lymphocyte subset flow um, for B cells every month um, and clonoseq on the blood and hope that I'm going to catch something. Um, I have given pump maintenance now um, to patients as like post-car maintenance when the cars are no longer detectable because we actually do track real-time cars here at Stanford, which is kind of nice. Um, I've used pump. I've given, we've now given two patients DLIs. Um, which seems kind of crazy, but it's like if the cars are gone, we've just, you know, and they haven't developed GBH, we've done that. So we're trying different, different things. And actually in this real world consortium, what we saw is that other people are trying different things too. So several patients have gotten Palm, you know, patients have gotten DLIs. So I think people are trying, and I, I think this is an area that um, we do need to study in adults, both how should we monitor and really kind of what can we do to prolong CAR T cell responses? Because the CARs are so good at clearing disease. Like, how can we just make them durable? What about the use of brexicaptogen in transplant ineligible patients? 
you know, in the way that CAR T cells have been used in, in you know, in non-Hodgkin lymphoma, right. for instance. Yeah. I know other people may, um, I mean, if they were get referred and it makes sense, then I will try, but I don't, it's not like I take a patient in, you know, first MRD and say, okay, I'm going to off of a clinical trial, just standard of care. I'm going to give you to Cardis and think that it's going to like be curative. Like I don't have any, I mean, I think people are doing that. And I would just say, we don't have any data to say that it's going to be. And so if we do that, we should be, we should be doing clinical trials and at least enrolling patients because I don't, I don't think that the kite Zuma three data, you know, longer term is holding up to look like that's, you know, definitively the way to go. It may be the way to go. Zuma three was obviously, you know, full-blown disease patients. Like we don't have a Zuma three for MRD. We just make these presumptions, you know, that things will be better. And I think they will be probably, but I don't think that we can just presume that CAR T cells are a replacement for a transplant. And I've, I've made that argument like in every forum that I can, that until we see cars that have durable remission in like a good proportion of patients, I just don't, I don't know why we would think that car in first, you know, first MRD, for example, the way that we use transplant often is, is sort of just replacement, um, so, so no, I don't, I don't think that's the best option right now, but I think that's a hopeful option. Um, and I, you know, the OB-cell data were just presented at ASCO as well for adult ALL. Um, and their, um, you know, their registration trial, the Felix trial met its primary um, endpoint. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that car plays out um, and whether these responses are going to be durable. And, you know, it's certainly a less toxic car. Um, I completely agree with you. I do think that um, that we are going to, if we if we already haven't started seeing more of that though in practice. I think. Um, anything else? I always say this to my patients. I say anything else I should ask you, or anything else I should know. Yeah. Well, I did this um, like a couple of years ago. Stanford has. We all had to do, you know, that like compassionate physician training, and actually the term what else was the most highly recommended term to use with your patients? So what else? So what else? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I would just say that I, you know, I am, if you can't tell, I really love ALL. I think it's like a joy to me to be able to be in this space. I'm incredibly thankful and I'm always happy to talk about this disease or patients or the research or really any aspect. I, I actually love studying all aspects of this disease from like, you know, epidemiology to, you know, having my colleagues run samples and do fancy single cell sequencing stuff that, you know, impacts our studies. So I just really enjoy this disease and this topic. And I'm always totally available and happy to um, engage with anyone in the ASTCT community um, who may have questions or just want to chat. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for listening to this episode of ASTCT Talks. Never miss an episode. Subscribe and provide reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about ASTCT, find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or visit ASTCT.org.